Alright, well, hello! It is a Wednesday, and I had the window open, so there might be some interruptions from wildlife. There's been a cat that keeps coming by and taunting my poor cat. Uh, much, much not appreciated. My cat just kind of watches this other cat, and it occasionally makes little distressed sounds, but the other cat hates my cat and is very angry at my cat for being in its territory, and my cat watches that cat like a goldfish. And she's just kind of like, oh, you're there. How interesting. <laughs> like, I think my cat is bragging about her spoiled domestic life while this other neighborhood cat is complaining. I don't know. Anyway, um, we're on chapter two. So, yay. I did look it up ahead of time, actually, to make sure that I wasn't, you know, going to make a ton of footnotes during the course of the story. Um, and, of course, there are footnotes, but most of them are probably after the chapter and the chapter wrap-up stuff. So I'll go ahead and start. Um, I told you last time chapter two is about 10 pages. I'll probably cut the pot, the, the chapter part of the podcast off at about 30 minutes, regardless of where I am in the chapter. I'm thinking that's probably the best way to go. Um, so yeah, so I'll go ahead and do that and we'll get started with chapter two. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul. Shakespeare Madame St. Aubert was interred in the neighboring village church. Her husband and daughter attended to her, her to the grave, followed by a long train of the peasantry, who were sincere mourners of this excellent woman. On his return from the funeral, St. Aubert shut himself in his... nope, chamber. When he came forth, it was with sincere, a sincere count, serene countenance, one of those words, anyway, um, though pale in sorrow, he gave orders that his family should attend him. Emily only was absent, who, overcome by the scene that she had just witnessed, has retired to her closet to weep alone. St. Aubert followed her thither. He took her hand in silence, and while she continued to weep, and it was some moments before he could so far command his voice to speak, it trembled while he said, my Emily, I am going to prayers with my family. Will you join us? We must ask support from above. Where else ought we to seek it? Where else can we find it? Emily checked her tears and followed her father to the parlor, where, the servants being assembled, St. Aubert read in a low and solemn voice the evening service, and added a prayer for the soul of the departed. During this his voice often faltered, his tears fell upon the book, and at length he paused. But the sublime emotions of pure devotion gradually elevated his views from above the world, and finally brought comfort to his heart. When the service was ended and the servants were withdrawn, he tenderly kissed Emily and said, I have endeavored to teach you from your earliest youth the duty of self-command. I have pointed out to you the great importance of it throughout life, not only as it preserves in the various and dangerous temptations in that call us to rest i'm having struggles today guys rest rec rectitude and virtue but limits the indulgences which are de termed virtuous which yet beyond a s extend beyond a certain boundary are vicious for their consequences evil all excess is vicious even that of sorrow when it is amiable in origin becomes a selfish and unjust passion 
if indulged at the expense of our duties, by our duties I mean what we owe to ourselves as well as to others, the indulgence of excessive grief invariates the mind and almost incapacitates it for partaking of those various innocent enjoyments which a benevolent God designed to be the sunshine of our lives. My dear Emily, recollect and practice the precepts I have so often given you, which your own experience has so often shown you to be wise. Your sorrow is useless. Do not receive this merely as a commonplace remark, but let reason therefore restrain sorrow. I would not annihilate your feelings, my child. I would only teach you to command them, for whatever may be the evils resulting from a too susceptible heart, nothing can be hoped from an insensible one. That, on the other hand, is all vice, vice for which the deformity is not softened, or the effect consoled for, by any semblance or possibility of good. You know my sufferings, and are therefore convinced that mine are not the light words which, on, this, on these occasions, are so often repeated to destroy even the sources of honest emotion, or which merely display the selfish ostentation of a false philosophy. I will show my Emily that I can practice what I advise. I have said thus much, because I cannot bear to see you wasting in useless sorrow, nor for want of that resilience which is due from mind. And I have not said till now, because there is a period when all reasoning must yield to nature, that is past, and another when excessive indulgence, having sunk into habit, weighs down the elasticity of our spirits, so as to render the conquest nearly impossible. This is to come. You, my Emily, will show that you are willing to avoid it. Emily smiled through her tears upon her father. "'Dear sir,' said she, her voice trembled, and she would have added, "'I will show myself worthy of being your daughter.' But the mingled emotion of gratitude, affection, and grief overcame her. St. Aubert suffered her to weep without interruption, and then began to talk on the common topics. The first person who came to condole with St. Aubert was a Monsieur Barreau, an austere and seemingly unfeeling man, a taste for botany had been intro had introduced them to each other, and they had frequently met in their wanderings among the mountains. Monsieur Barreau had retired from the world, and almost from society, to live in a pleasant chateau on the skirts of the woods near Laval. Valie, he had been disappointed in his opinion of mankind, but he did not, like St. Aubert, pity and mourn for them. He felt more the indignation at their vices than compassion for their weaknesses. St. Aubert was somewhat surprised to see him, for, though he had often pressed him to come to the chateau, he had never till now accepted the invitation, and now he came without ceremony or reserve, entering the parlor as an old friend. The claims of misfortune appeared to have softened down all the ruggedness and prejudices of his heart. St. Aubert was unhappy, and seemed to be the sole idea that it occupied his mind. It was his manners, more than his words, that he appeared to sympathize with his friends. He spoke little on the subject of grief, but on the minute attention he gave them, and the modulated voice, and the softened look that accompanied them, came from his heart and spoke to theirs. At this melancholy period, St. Aubert was likewise visited by Madame Chiron his only surviving sister, who had been sometimes ye some sometimes years some years a widow, and now resided on her own estate near Thuis. The intercourse between them had not been very frequent. In her condolence words were not wanting. She understood not the magic of the look that speaks at once to the soul, 
or the voice that sinks like the balm to the heart, but she assured St. Aubert that she sincerely sympathized with him, and praised the virtues of his late wife, and then offered what she considered to be consolation. Emily wept unceasingly while she spoke, and St. Aubert was tranquil, and listened to what she said in silence, and then turned the discourse upon another subject. At the parting she pressed him and her niece to make her an early visit. "'Change will—change of place will amuse you,' said she. "'It is not wrong—it is wrong to give way to grief.' St. Aubert acknowledged the truth of these words, of course, but, at the same time, felt more than reluctant than ever to quit the spot which his past happiness had consecrated. The presence of his wife had sanctified almost every surrounding scene, and each day has gradually softened the acuteness of his suffering, assisted the tender enchantment that was bound him to home." But there were calls which must be compi compiled with, and of this kind it was the visit he paid to his brother-in-law, Monsieur Concel, an affair of an interesting nature which made it necessary that he should delay his visit no longer, and wishing to rouse Emily from her dejection, he took her with him to Epperville. As the carriage entered upon the forest that adjoined his paternal domain, his eyes once more caught between the chestnut avenue and the turreted corners of the chateau. He sighed to think of what had passed since he was last there, and that it was now the property of a man who neither revered nor valued it. At the end, at length, he entered the avenue, whose lofty trees had so often delighted him when he was a boy, and whose melancholy shade was now so congenial with the tone of his spirits. Every feature of the edifice, distinguished by an air of heavy grandeur, appeared successively between the branches of the trees, the broad turret, the arched gateway that led him into the courts, the drawbridge, and the dry fosse, which surrounded the whole. Fosse? Fosse? I assume that's like a faux uh, moat, but of course dry, so a ditch. I guess I would... I don't know what that is. I'm happy thinking of it as a fancy French ditch. And that makes me giggle. So we're going to go with fancy French di ditch. We've got to be careful how you say that word. The sound of the carriage wheels brought a troop of servants to the great gate where St. Aubert alighted, and from which he led Emily into the Gothic hall, now no longer hung with the arms and ancient banners of the family. These were displaced, and the oak wainscoting and the beams that crossed the roof were painted white. Oh, painting wood. Oh, my God, how evil. The large table, too, that used to stretch along the upper end of the hall, where the master of the mansion loved to display his hospitality, and whence the peal of laughter and song of conviviality had so often resounded, was now removed. Even the benches that had surrounded the hall were no longer there. The heavy walls were hung with frivolous ornaments, and everything that appeared to denote the false taste and corrupted sentiments of the present owner. St. Aubert followed a gay Parisian servant into the parlor, where sat Monsieur and Madame Cancel, who received him with stately politeness, and after a few formal words of condolement, seemed to have forgotten that they ever had a sister. Emily felt tears swell into her eyes, and then resentment checked them. St. Aubert, calm and delicate, preserved his dignity without assuming importance, and Cancel was depressed by his presence without exactly knowing wherefore. After some general conversation, St. Aubert requested to speak with him alone, and Emily, being left with Madame Quincel, soon learned that a large party was invited to dine at the chateau, and that compelled her to hear that nothing which was past and irredeemable ought to prevent the festivity of the present hour. 
Saint Hubert, when he was told that the company was expected, felt a mixed emotion of disgust and indignation against the insensibility of Cancel, which prompted him to return home immediately. But he was informed that Madame Chiron had been asked to meet with him, and when he looked at Emily and considered that a time might come when the enmity of her uncle would be prejudicial to her, he determined not to incur it himself by a conduct which would be resented as indecorous by the very persons who now showed him so little sense of decorum. I don't have my bell, so ring, 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 ring. Um, so they're throwing a party right after their sister has died, which um, would have been bad manners in the era this book is meant to be in. But in Radcliffe's England was exceedingly bad manners. Um, you went into a period of mourning and you were not seen at parties. You didn't do things. Uh, there were very strict social rules about how long you were supposed to hide from the world in your grief before you could reenact with the world. So the fact that they're having a party is just really bad taste. And, um, the readers at the time would have really felt that they're like, Oh, Oh, what? horrible person but of course dad here is thinking that you know i i know that uh my daughter is gonna maybe someday need her uncle's good favor because you know i'm not getting any younger and blah 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 so he's not gonna do anything you know to sort of run away before dinner is called but now because they're there they essentially got invited to dinner and so they're going to go to dinner and they're not even supposed to be like, they're in mourning, you know, like I have had a close family member die. And I, let me tell you, I was no fit company to be going to dinners. My goodness. No, 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 no. I can't even imagine what you'd have to be able to put up with. But anyway, uh, ring, 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 ring. Among the visitors assembled at the dinner were two Italian gentlemen, one of whom was James Montoni, a distant relation of Madame Cancel, a man of about forty and of an uncommonly handsome person, with features manly and expressive, whose countenance exhibited upon the whole more of the haughtiness of command and the quickness of discernment than of any other character. Signor... Ooh, this one's gonna be hard. Cavid... Ginny, Cavagini, his friend, appeared to be about thirty, his inferior dignity, but equal to him in penetration of countenance and superior in situation of manner. Emily was shocked by the salutation with which Madame Charon met her father. "'Dear brother,' said she, "'I am concerned to see you look so very ill. Do pray have advice.' St. Aubert answered with a melancholy smile that he felt himself as much as usual, but Emily's fears made her now fancy that her father's looked worse than he really did. Emily would have been amused by the new characters she saw and the varied conversation that passed during the dinner, which was served in a style of splendor she had seldom seen before, and had her spirits been less depressed. Uh, had her spirits been less depressed, of the guests, Signor Montoni came lately from Italy, and he spoke of the commotions at which the period agitated the country, talked of different, talked of party differences with warmth, and lamented the probable consequences of the tumults. His friend spoke with equal ardor of the politics of his country, and praised the government and prosperity of Venice, and boasted to his decidedly superior 
his decided superiority superiority over the other Italian states. Ring, 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 ring. Um, there were like war, wars going on in Italy at this time. Um, for many many years, Italy is divided up into principalities. Um, and the borders change frequently, and it's not a very peaceful region. And that was true in this time. Um, anyway, he then turned the talk to a oh ring ring. He then turned the talk to the ladies and talked with the same eloquence of Parisian fashions, the French opera, French manners, and the latter subject did not fail to mingle what was so particularly agreeable to French taste. The flattery was not detected by those to whom it was addressed, though its effect in producing submissive attention did not escape his observation. When he could disengage himself from the assiduities of the other ladies, he sometimes addressed Emily, but she knew nothing of Parisian fashions or Parisian operas, and her modesty, simplicity, and correct manners formed a decided contrast to those of her female companions. After dinner, St. Aubert stole from the room to view once more the old chestnut which Quincel had talked of cutting down. As he stood under its shade and looked up in the branches, still luxuriant, saw here the blue sky trembling between them, the pursuits of the events of his early days crowned so fast to his mind, and the figures and characters and friends long since gone from the earth, and he now felt himself to be almost an insulated being, with nobody but Emily for his heart to turn to. He stood lost amid the scenes of years which fancy called up, till succession closed with the picture of his dying wife, and he started away to forget, as if possible, at the social board. Uh, St. Aubert ordered his carriage at an early hour, and Emily observed that he was more unusually silent and dejected on the way home, but she considered this to be the effect of his visit to a place of which he spoke so eloquently of former times, nor suspected that he caused of grief which he concealed from her. On entering the chateau she felt more depressed than ever, for more than ever she missed the presence of that dear parent who, whenever she had been returning from home, used to welcome her return with smiles and fondness, and now all was silent and forsaken. But what reason and effort may fail to do, time effects. Week after week passed away, and as each passed something stole from the harshness of her affliction, till it was mellow, and that mellowed, and that tenderness which the feeling of her heart cherishes as sacred, St. Aubert, on the contrary, visibly declined in health, although Emily, who had been so constantly with him, was the last person who observed it, which is very common. I mean, yeah. His constitution had n never recovered from the late attack of fever, and the succeeding shock it received from Madame St. Aubert's death had produced its present infirmity. His physician now ordered him to travel, for it was perceptible that sorrow had seized upon his nerves, and weakened as they had been by preceding illness, and a variety of scene, it was probable, would amuse his mind and restore it to a proper tone. For some days Emily had been preoccupied with preparations to attend him, and he, by endeavours to diminish his experience expenses at home during his journey, a purpose which determined him at length to dismiss his domestics. Emily seldom opposed her father's wishes by questions or remonstrations, or she would now have asked him why he did not take a servant, and had represented that his infirm health made one almost necessary. But when, on the eve of their departure, she found that he had dismissed Jacques, Francis, and Mary, and determined only Teresa and their old housekeeper, she was extremely surprised, and ventured to ask his reason for having done so. "'To save expensive, my dear,' he replied." 
We are going to have an expensive excursion. Ooh, expensive excursion. The physician had prescribed the air of Longdeloc. Oh my gosh, what is happening? Okay, sorry, my cat just suddenly startled. Um, which I'm probably mispronouncing horribly, once again. Um, and Provence. And Saint-Aubert determined, therefore, to travel leisurely along the shores of the Mediterranean towards Provence. They retired early to their chamber on the night before their departure, but Emily had so few books and other things to collect, and the clock had struck twelve before she had finished, or had remembered that some of her drawing instruments which she meant to take with her were in the parlour below. And she went to fetch these, she passed her father's room, perceiving the door half open, concluded that he was in his study, for since the death of Madame Saint-Aubert, it had frequently been his custom to rise restless from his bed and go thither to compose his mind. When she was below stairs, she looked into his room, but without finding him, and, as she returned to her chamber, she tapped at his door, and, receiving no answer, stepped softly in to be certain whether he was there. The room was dark, but a light glimmered through the panes of glass that were placed in the upper part of the closet door. Emily believed her father to be in that closet, and, surprised that he was up at so late an hour, apprehended he was unwell, and was going to require... But considering that her sudden appearance at this hour might alarm him, she removed her light to the staircase and stepped softly to the closet. On looking through the panes of glass, she saw him seated at a small table with papers before him, some of which he was reading with deep attention and interest, during which he often wept and sobbed aloud. Emily, who had come to the door to learn whether her father was ill, was now detained there by a mixture of curiosity and tenderness. She could not witness his sorrow without being anxious to know the subject of it, and she therefore continued to observe him in silence, concluding that these papers were of her late mother. Presently he knelt down with a look so solemn as she had seldom seen him assume, and which was mingled with a certain wild expression that partook more of horror than any other character. He prayed silently for a considerable time. When he rose, a ghastly paleness was on his countenance. Emily was hastily retiring, but she saw him turn again to the papers, and she stopped. He took from them a small case, and from thence a miniature picture. Lays of, rays of light fell strongly upon it, and she perceived that to be of a lady, but not her mother. Saint-Aubert gazed earnestly and tenderly upon this portrait, and put it to his lips, then to his heart, and sighed with a conclusive force. Emily could scarcely believe what she saw to be real. She never knew till now that he had a picture of any other lady than her mother, much less one which he evidently valued so highly, but having looked repeatedly to be certain it was not the resemblance of Madame Saint-Aubert, she became entirely convinced that it was designed for that of some other person. At length Saint-Aubert returned the picture to its case, and Emily, recollecting that she was intruding upon his private sorrows, softly withdrew from his chamber. End chapter 2 Okay, well, um, wow, Dad, you know, one minute you're all moody under the chestnut tree, the next we find out you've got the secret love lady. What? That's why you should never, like, eavesdrop. You always find out things you don't want to, or at least that's what the moms used to say to us when we were young. At least my mom did. Um, I just noticed I have a bruise on the top of my foot. Ow. Anyway, so interesting chapter. Um, apparently, one of the most 
famous things that happened in this chapter is the reference to the French opera, um, which doesn't open for like another hundred years or something <laughs> from the book that's supposed to be set in the 1500s. It doesn't open until the mid 1600s. And anyway, it's apparently one of her most famous anachronisms. Um, and then uh, the other thing that happened is we met Signor Montoni. And he is the villain on whom, like, so many villains are, like, uh, how do you say, uh, based. I don't know why I could not think of that word. Um, but, like, pretty much he is, like, the penultimate, um, what do you call that? When someone is, like, the original cast type. But anyway, um... Yeah, so my little reference book is saying, or my little explanatory notes point out that, like, the Brontes all copy, you know, villains off of him. Um, it was, you know, Jane Austen's villains were somewhat similar. I mean, in general, I think villainy is the kind of thing that can't be that different, but he's definitely what conjures to mind when you think of, you know, an evil gothic villain in a gothic romance horror story. Uh, so anyway, that was interesting. We did get a brief meet of him, but we don't know why he's evil yet, or we don't have any indication as the reader. We just know that from the back of the book that I read in the first podcast. So <laughs> anyway, um, good start. Uh, next chapter looks like it's another about 10 pages. So we'll be able to knock that out in one more podcast. I don't know. I'm thinking I'm going to stick to at least three podcasts a week. Um, I might be doing more just depends on like what my schedule is, but I promise I will get at least three done this a week. So we've had three this week. The other two are optional, I guess for me. Um, yeah, so I'm guessing dad is not much longer for the world. I'm guessing we get like halfway to Provence and then dad dies. Just, just, just like my guess that she's going to suddenly find herself stranded with no money and no servants and just this like mystery picture you know that her dad is clutching uh, anyway that's that's kind of where I think things are going at this point we'll see uh I'd like to hear what you guys are thinking and really if anybody does know how to pronounce these things you can always leave a voice message on the podcast and I don't have to post it but if you do know how to pronounce things and you want to help me, feel free. I am very open to suggestions. Um, yeah. So have a nice Wednesday, everybody.